Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 16 of You Don't Know Jack. I am your host, Sarah Dimio, with everything you need to know in the career of the legend himself, Jack Nicholson. We're in a new year, only one week into 2021, and holy shit, what a week it's been. Am I right? But... What this new year means for us is that I am back to having a new episode for you each week, every Wednesday. No more skipping weeks and keeping you waiting. Now, second order of business. If you follow You Don't Know Jack on social media, you probably saw my announcement that I will not be reviewing 1971's A Safe Place today because of a little snafu I had with the Blu-ray disc that I ordered. So this is what happened. I had ordered a box set from the Criterion Collection, which I know that some of you listening have because I've seen you post pictures of it in the Jack Nicholson groups on Facebook. It's a box set called America Lost and Found, the BBS story. It's a collection of films from BBS Productions. So it also includes a lot of movies we've talked about already on this podcast, like Head, Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, Drive, he said, and it's also got The Last Picture Show and The King of Marvin Gardens. And the only reason I purchased this box set, especially considering that I don't even own a Blu-ray player, is because it is the only place that I was able to find a safe place. You other Jack fanatics know this. And remember way back when I reviewed Flight to Fury, I said finding a DVD of Flight to Fury was finding the rarest of unicorns in Jack's entire career? Well, turns out I was wrong. A safe place does not exist anywhere else. You can find one clip from Jack's performance in it on YouTube. But that's it, just that one clip. So you have no context whatsoever as to what the movie is supposed to be about. So anyway, week before last, I was borrowing my mom's Blu-ray player. I pop the disc in, I get as far as the menu page, okay? And this player doesn't have a remote or anything, so I had to just press play on the machine. And nothing happened. I get a little pop-up on the screen that says, not available. And this damn Blu-ray player has all of three buttons on it. Play, slash, pause, eject, and stop. So I'm in a stalemate with this Blu-ray player. So for that reason, I cannot bring you my review of A Safe Place. And instead, we will move right along to our next film, 1972's The King of Marvin Gardens. We're not forgetting a safe place. We are going to figure this ridiculous problem out. I spent money on this box set. We're going to make it work. You know what I'm saying? But I hope you can understand why I was a little thrown off last week and why I was unable to get today's review to you as originally planned. However, take the good with the bad. And today I bring to you the King of Marvin Gardens. So we are now in the early 70s, well into the new Hollywood era of filmmaking. At this point, Jack is making it in Hollywood. 
He has twice been nominated for an Academy Award, the first being for Best Supporting Actor in Easy Rider and Best Actor in Five Easy Pieces. And he is reaching celebrity status. He's a ladies' man. That's, that's what people dig about him. As far as dating goes, at this point in Jack's life, you can often see him alongside Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, They dated from 1970 through 1972. On and off, of course. Let's be real. This is Hollywood. Everybody was going around with everybody. And it would be one more year until Jack would begin his very famous 16-year-long relationship with Angelica Houston, which I'll talk about more when we get into it. As we approach 1972, the King of Marvin Gardens would be next up, in a long line of films in which Jack would collaborate with director Bob Rafelson. And again, as I've said before, chef's kiss. I first saw The King of Marvin Gardens around the age that I saw majority of Jack's movies. I want to say around 14 or 15. But here's something that I remember distinctly. This was not one of the films that we rented on a weekend from Blockbuster. Because I remember, each time we went there, this was a title that I would search the shelves for, and it was never there. So this was one of the ones that I ordered on VHS tape, used from eBay. And I was so excited when it finally came, because you want to talk about rare unicorns. This was the late 90s. Maybe, possibly, could have been the year 2000. It was before smart TVs, before YouTube, before Amazon. It was really still very much the dark ages of trying to find rare movies. So when I saw it for the first time, as usual, I didn't fully appreciate the psychology of the characters. I could follow the plot. It's not that it's overly complicated or anything like that, but it's a movie very much about having delusions of grandeur and the consequences that arise from it. When you're a young teenager with a big imagination and big dreams to rule the world, I don't think you're at a point yet where you comprehend just how deep these delusions run. Because when you're young and coming up and you're full of optimism, you know, you're going to make it. You're not quite at that age yet where somewhere along the line in adulthood, you get that filter in your brain that says, "Mm, wait a minute, that's not how that works. That is not how this is unfolding in front of you. And some people don't get that filter even well into adulthood. I think it's a combination of arrogance, for one thing, but also surrounding yourself with equally delusional people. And when there's no one around you to say, hey, reality check, dummies. And that leads me to what I think is the third thing, just no one ever telling you no. These are the things that I personally have found are common traits of the really delusional types. Either they've never heard the word no, or if they have, they immediately deflect. Like, well, we were on our way to doing this big thing, but so-and-so over there went and messed it up for us. And if you have nobody in your circle keeping you in line, just everyone around you equally has their head in the clouds, that's when it just becomes an endless cycle. 
until ultimately it just ends in disaster. This is actually another reason why I had to skip another week, because throughout my adult life, knowing so many various people in the arts, whether it be filmmaking, gamers, musicians, what have you, I've had a lot of friends come and go. And I have known so many people like this, where it just becomes so evident that they're not being realistic. They don't even know what they're talking about. And then it just becomes such a toxic situation. And having not seen The King of Marvin Gardens in a while, I watched it last week. Then I immediately hit restart and watched it through again. And it reminded me so much of so many people that I've known that it was actually kind of getting me angry. Just the mere memory of those people. So I eventually watched it through a third time. And it's just crazy how your appreciation for a film like this can change when you watch it at different stages of your life. That's another privilege of youth, I think. The optimism in not knowing what's ahead, wanting to know what's around the corner. But when you're older and slightly wiser, you can recognize a bad situation and say, I know what's going to happen next because I've been through it before. The film stars Jack as David Stabler. This character is a departure from the type of character that Jack usually plays. David is very introverted, very sullen, serious. He's even described in the movie as being a depressive. He hosts a late night radio talk show called Etc., where he recounts stories from his life. No disrespect, of course, to National Public Radio, but it is very much an NPR-style show. Like, his tone is very much like this. Imagine, if you will, if I spoke to you all and told you stories in this voice for an hour, half hour. And David lives in Philadelphia in a house he shares with his grandfather. Bruce Stern, friend of the podcast, plays David's older brother, Jason Stabler. And these two brothers are polar opposites. Jason is everything that David is not. He's an extrovert, fast talker, life of the party at all times. And a little backstory here. You might feel like these two characters, played by Jack Nicholson and Bruce Dern, seem very much like characters that the other actor would play. Like, you might expect to see Bruce Dern play the serious, quiet character, and Jack play the cad and the schemer. I have heard, though I have not been able to confirm this, that originally they were cast as the other character. It was supposed to be Jack plays Jason and Bruce plays David. But it was director Bob Rafelson who said, I want you guys to switch roles for this one. I remember hearing that many years ago on Remember the Show Inside the Actor's Studio with James Lipton. It was the episode he had Ellen Burstyn on, and she explained that this is what happened. And I'm certainly inclined to believe it, because when you have that in your head, I find it very easy to swap the two out and imagine them in the other role. And just as another side story here, 
having seen the King of Marvin Gardens before, I was glad when I realized that I would be jumping ahead into this one. This is something I didn't realize prior to starting this podcast in the early years of Jack Nicholson's career in movies. Who knew that there was going to be this much Bruce Dern? We didn't have any Bruce Dern in our last episode, Carnal Knowledge, so I feel like we need a dose. Without a healthy dose of Bruce Dern periodically, where would we be? And coincidentally, back on Christmas Day, I was over at my mom's house, and the subject of a movie called Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte came up. I had never seen it. I had only heard of it. And my mom loves this movie. It's a black and white mystery suspense from 1964, starring Betty Davis and Olivia de Havilland, and it features a very young Bruce Dern. He doesn't have a lot of screen time, but it's an important role in the film, and I do recommend it. It was very good. But what fascinated me about that was here's a wee baby Bruce Dern in a big film with Betty Davis, and just a few years later, he's making B-movies with Roger Corman and Jack Nicholson, like The Trip, Psycho, and whatever that thing was, Rebel Rousers. And then he, like Jack, is sort of coming up in this new Hollywood era and then back into big budget movies again. Like, somebody draw me the roadmap of that. And this is something I'm going to really have to look into eventually, because I kept thinking to myself, how in the hell did he get that role so early in his career in a Betty Davis picture, and then start doing low budget pictures? But I guess really the only way that I can explain it is, like I've said before, is that there is no line set in stone where an actor has one big film and then they've made it. There's always a crossover, always a crossover between big budget and low budget, especially in the early years of somebody's career. The King of Marvin Gardens also stars who I just mentioned, Ellen Burstyn, as Sally. Sally is a former beauty queen who is reaching about 40 years old, and it's never blatantly said so at any point, but it becomes evident that she was also a prostitute. And those of us who are all about the classic horror, we, of course, know and love Ellen Burstyn as Chris McNeil from The Exorcist. And here's an interesting connection that I found. Ellen Burstyn was married to Neil Nephew, from 1964 to the year The King of Marvin Gardens came out, 1972. Neil Nephew had been a story editor, and he wrote two episodes of The Monkees. So here we go. We're bringing it back around again. And he also, along with Jack and Bruce, made an appearance in Rebel Rousers. Now, Jason is currently living in Atlantic City with Sally and the much younger Jessica played by Julia Ann Robinson. And I'm going to tell you about her in just a few minutes because sadly, Julia Ann Robinson's story turns out to be a tragic one. So it's not clear what the relationship is between Sally and Jessica at first, but what is clear from the jump is that they're just unnaturally close, like uncomfortably close. The film opens with no music, no introduction, just right on David as he's giving one of his stories on his radio program. It's a story about him and his brother Jason from a very early age. One Friday, my parents went out, leaving my brother and I 
alone to serve ourselves and grandfather. Mom left the fish warming on the stove. Breaded sole. Breadcrumbs only help to conceal the bones. When the inevitable coughing began, my brother and I just sat and looked at each other, not moving. Grandfather's eyes got wide. His face became contorted and red, his arms flailing about. to the kitchen and back with a flat heel of pumpernickel. Grandfather reached out for it convulsively. But I handed it to my brother instead. forward onto the dining room table and then back, knocking his chair over, pulling the tablecloth, silverware, mashed potatoes, fish, stewed tomatoes with peppers and onions, all of it on top of him. Heaped on the floor, Behind the table, he looked like the remains of some chaotic dinner party. My brother took the incriminating pumpernickel from my hand and uh, stuck it into grandpa's fingers. I think at that moment, my brother and I became accomplices forever. During the telling of this story, a red light begins to blink inside the studio. It's the producer trying to get David's attention. And the producer is trying to tell David that there was a phone call for him and that it was an emergency. But David pays it no mind. He just becomes mildly irritated with his producer. And then it's during David's quiet, uneventful trek home that we see our opening credits, a lot of familiar names, another BBS production directed by Bob Rafelson, produced by Steve Blauner, Bob Rafelson and Harold Schneider, screenplay by Jacob Brackman, cinematography by Laszlo Kovacs yet again, and production design by Toby Carr Rafelson. When David gets home, his grandpa, you know, the one they tried to kill, tells David that it was Jason who called and he had given him David's number at the station. So the next day, while David is still in bed, Jason calls again. And this big emergency is that the Stabler brothers' ship has come in and David has to come down to Atlantic City. 
And when David arrives, he gets off the train, and that's where he's greeted by Sally. She has a fur coat on, and she pulls it open, and she's wearing a sash that says welcome in big letters. But Jason is not there. Jason has managed to land himself in jail. So David goes down to the jailhouse. And this one big cell is full of guys. But across this crowd, framed perfectly by the bars, we see Jason's smiling face. And he saunters like the king shit that he is through the mass to greet his brother. Same old David, huh? You notice how it's Monopoly out there? Remember Boardwalk, Park Place, Marvin Gardens, directly to jail? That's me. Don't pass gold, dollars Jason instructs David to go to an address that he writes down for him and talk to a man named Lewis, and to tell Lewis he wants to be out of there by sundown. So when David goes to this address, he goes to the front door, and the person who answers tells him to go around to the back. So he goes around and he's led through this narrow hallway into a kitchen where there's off to the side what looks like a lounge area and it's filled with men, all black men, and they're sitting back, they're hanging out, talking, and one in particular looks over into the kitchen where David is waiting. And this one man comes through the door, he kicks another guy out of the place And we don't know what their business is. We're going into this just as blind as David. So after he kicks this other guy out, he turns to talk to David. He's played by Scatman Crothers. This film would be the first of four collaborations between he and Jack. The last of which is, of course, The Shining. The very reason as to why this podcast exists. Now, this man played by Scatman Crothers does not introduce himself to David, but asks him his business there. What's the message? Well, Jason said that I should only talk to Lewis. Getting to Lewis known to entail additional waiting time. <clears throat> well, Jason said that if Lewis knows... Right there, my boy, is an accurate summarization. Jason says, and Lewis knows. <laughs> Jason says, and Lewis knows. You want to change seats, though? Go right ahead. (laughs) So David hasn't even been in town for a half an hour, and Jason has already placed him into a wildly uncomfortable situation. David does not wait there. He opts to leave that place. And with currently nowhere to go, he walks on the boardwalk around the city, his luggage still in hand. As he's wandering aimlessly, Jason, who is now out on bail, along with Sally and Jessica, the three of them are packed into this motorized cart on the boardwalk where they're up in front and there's a driver standing behind them. Jason has the driver pull up to David. Jason gets out, gives David the most awkward, uncomfortable hug. Jason is all in, but David is noticeably pulling away. He either doesn't know what to do or he just doesn't want to be that close. But they all take David back to where Jason has this permanent suite at the Essex Carlton. It's the nicest hotel on the boardwalk. And as they're coming in and going up to the room, Jason is explaining to David, oh, it's a bullshit charge. Somebody is just out to get him. 
But he explains it in further detail a little later when he and David are down in the dining area. Seemingly, they just had dinner or they're about to. And this scene just always stands out for me because I feel like each time I've watched it, I've noticed something different. And it starts off with Jason taking this big swig from a drink that he has. And there's something about the way that he drinks it and what he does right after that. I swear to you, I was able to taste that drink. I don't know what that concoction was, but I knew, I knew that it was sweet, but also it was strong, like it had a real bite to it. It's like a dark pink in color, almost purple, and it's in a highball glass with ice. Jason is facing away from David, though they're sitting across from each other, and he takes this big gulp. He puts it down. He lifts both his hands up. His eyes are closed, and he puckers his lips, and he makes like a pop, like he's kissing the air. And then he turns back to David and goes into his story. And the next thing I notice when the shot goes over to David, David is facing straight ahead, looking at Jason. And just over to his right, he has what very much looks like milk. Like, okay, I guess that's fitting. I don't know if it's just me, but I just found there to be something humorous to that. Here are two grown men and their drink orders are some tart purple mixture and a glass of milk. Jesus Christ. No. Jason is telling the story of how he landed in jail and what happened was he was driving this woman's car, a woman that he knows. She lets him drive it whenever he wants. So he's parked with this different woman sitting in the passenger seat and he has to get into the trunk, but he doesn't have the key. But they do have a crowbar. So he's trying to pry open this trunk in the middle of the night with a crowbar. And right as he's getting it open, a cop pulls up. So obviously this doesn't look good. He's prying this trunk open. And there's this other woman in the front seat who's now trying to hide herself under the dash. Cop comes over with his flashlight, starts looking in the trunk. And unbeknownst to Jason, in this trunk... There's a whole box full of Swiss watches. And on top of that, this car that he drives all the time was reported stolen. And Jason is laughing his way through this story. It's so ridiculous. David, however, doesn't seem quite as amused. He's smiling through pursed lips tensely. And this is the other thing that I noticed in that scene. The look on Jack's face as he's sitting there smiling uncomfortably through this story, is the exact same look that he has decades later at the retirement party scene in About Schmidt. You know that scene in About Schmidt where Warren, Jack's character, is up at the seat of honor and his friend Ray stands up to give him a toast and Warren is uncomfortably smiling through it? Same look, to such a degree that It's like somebody hit copy-paste. It made me want to compare those two characters decades apart. Not to jump ahead now or anything, but when I think about it, you know, they're both two characters who are very much outside of what Jack typically plays. Introvert, reserved, leads a quiet life, that type of thing. And just for me, personally, I just found that to be an interesting parallel. 
But Jason gets into the reason why he asked David to come down to Atlantic City. When we see them back up in Jason's suite, the two brothers are kneeling down on the floor looking at a map of Hawaii, specifically this one tiny island off the main island called Tiki. And this is the place where Jason, with David as his partner, plans to build his own nightclub casino. And that whole island would be theirs. Stabler Ravia, as he calls it. This is a deal that he worked out through working for Lewis. That's what Jason does for him. He goes out and opens up these territories to build nightclubs and casinos and all these big money makers. And this is also the scene where we first really get a look at Sally and Jessica together. As the boys are down on the floor and Jason is pitching all these plans to David, Sally and Jessica are over on the sofa and it is so bizarre. Sally is brushing Jessica's hair and beaming ear to ear, looking over at Jason and David. And she asks them, isn't she beautiful? And she gently takes Jessica by the chin and asks them, Miss America? It starts to become evident that that's what Sally is attempting to do, to groom Jessica for Miss America. And Jason feeds into this dream of Sally's, Miss Hawaii, Miss America. David seems mildly skeptical at Jason's plans, but seems to be on board because everything that Jason is telling David about how these plans came to be, it all tracks. Jason tells him he has some Japanese investors flying in in a few days. But each time that I've watched this film, I really try to question, why does David stick with Jason? He makes it known from the beginning he's unsure about the plans. But I really do think that it's because Jason is such a schemer. And they are brothers, so Jason uses that to his advantage a lot. He gaslights, in other words. You're my brother. This is the Stabler Brothers reunion. That kind of a thing. This is why I was saying that it was hard for me to get this review done because I feel it so personally. And I will admit, I have been both characters at different times in my life. I have worked on projects with partners in the past at different times, mind you, who have had big plans of starting a million dollar business because they just made this new connection at Fandango or GameStop, or because I know somebody in the business who flew across the country and spoke to an agent for us. And both my partnership with those people and also their respective plans always end up going tits up. And you know why? Because with each of them, each time I've questioned them or I've come right out and said, this isn't going to work, they've turned it around on me and said, oh, you just think that because you're being negative. You need to stop thinking that way. But not to piss entirely on Jason or Sally for their big dreams, because I've been that person too. I've had big plans, plans, of course, being in air quotes, to make the next big grandiose feature film somehow without a budget that's going to sweep the nation. And anyone who wasn't on board with me, I really would believe that they didn't have enough faith or patience. So at this point, this early on in the movie, David seems to be on the fence 
with Jason's big ideas. It's in the next scene where we catch a glimpse of just how full of talk Jason is. The two brothers are on the beach under the boardwalk. Jason is still trying to convince David to be all in on his plans. And Jason suddenly wants to run along the beach and he chides David to run with him. So they start slow and then they pick up the pace a little bit until they're both running. And I should mention too that this is set in the winter. So they both got these long overcoats on. But Jason is full of energy like he could run 10 more miles. Meanwhile, David is doubled over, out of breath. He's almost puking. But then Jessica runs out from the hotel onto the beach, all out of breath, explains to Jason how Sally went to take her morning bath, but the water came out rusty. So she goes next door to the St. James Hotel, which Jason claimed that he acquired the week before. Sally grabbed the keys from the desk clerk and went up to one of the rooms to take her bath there instead. So the hotel manager calls the police. And once Jason hears this, all hell breaks loose. Because Jason is out on bail, he can't get into any scuffles with the police. He grabs his overcoat and starts towards the St. James. He realizes he has an unregistered gun in the pocket. So he definitely can't be seen with that. He hands the gun over to David, then takes off to the St. James. It is important to note where that gun is at all times because it is something that gets passed around a lot all throughout the film. In fact, once Jason takes off, Jessica comes over to David and asks him if he wants her to carry it. So she takes it and puts it into her purse. That's before the next scene where she very discreetly, all in one move, passes it back to Jason. So Jason goes tearing through the lobby of the St. James up to the room that Sally has occupied. Sally is holed up in the bathroom without her clothes. And Jason has it out with Sergis, the hotel manager. Sergis is played by John Ryan, another regular in Bob Rafelson's works. We just saw him not too long ago as Spicer in Five Easy Pieces. And we will be seeing him again in more projects to come. So come to find out, unsurprisingly, Jason does not own the St. James. This is another job that he's been working on via Lewis. So that incident comes to a head when Jason, Sally, Jessica, and David are all back at their suite at the Carlton. Jason, I'm just asking you to put yourself in my shoes for once, if you would, please. How on earth do you think that made me feel? Just think about it. Thank you. I mean, you told me that you own the goddamn St. James Hotel. So full of shit. What I told you was that we still had to examine the papers. You're full of shit! Thank you. You take a bath in there sometime, will you, Jason? Just go take one bath in there. The water is rusty, icky, mucky. I mean, you come out dirtier than when you went in, for God's sakes. Now just, I'm telling you, it won't even stay hot for three minutes on top of everything else. Now just go in there and take one bath and you'll see. Go on, shrivel your testicles. I'll talk to the manager. Oh, that'll be a lot of good trip. I mean, it's just for a few more days, darling. A couple weeks at the most. The Gora is flying in here Friday from Tokyo and we got a deal there. It's 96% finalized. Not like the St. James, darling. What is it? Sally, listen to me now for one time. I am listening well, to I you. Well, I tried to explain to you that the St. James deal was still in the exploratory stage. 
There are also a few scenes that come across as quite surreal. For example, David and Jason are on the beach on horseback, and the two horses are facing each other. So the shot, and I have to give props to Bob Rafelson, it's perfectly symmetrical. So you've got Jack Nicholson on the left on one horse and Bruce Dern on the right on the other horse. And they've got their long overcoats on. The sky is all overcast. And this is where Jason manages to talk David into getting on board with him. But the next surreal scene takes place in a big empty arena late at night. Starts off dark and then a single spotlight shines down on to Jessica who is on stage, and the organ begins playing, and she goes into her tap routine. And as she finishes, David comes on stage as our Miss America pageant MC. Miss Hawaii, yes indeed, Miss Hawaii. Style and grace and a beautiful face from our beautiful 50th state of blue, Hawaii. Yes indeed, no contest, major discovery. Totally major discovery! She's it! This is my favorite part of the show. Having fun? I'm just having a ball. Now, I notice in your biographical sketch that you haven't tap danced since you were nine years old. No, sir. Not really, sir. Ask her an interesting question, lame, and quit milking it for yourself. I see you brought your own rooting section with you. Yes, sir, I did. Sally turns around from playing the organ music, applauds thunderously. Jason, standing on top of a tower of crates, applauding thunderously. The four of them are in this large, empty arena with a spotlight technician that Jason paid, entertaining the fantasy of Jessica winning the Miss America pageant having already won the Miss Hawaii title, of course. Now, I told you that I would tell you more about Julia Ann Robinson, the actress who plays Jessica. Well, if you look up her credits, you will find that The King of Marvin Gardens is one of only three credits to her name. And it's also her last credit. And that is because, tragically, only three years after this movie was released, she died at the age of 24. She was born on March 4, 1951, in Twin Falls, Idaho. Prior to The King of Marvin Gardens, she had an uncredited role as a college girl in 1970's Getting Straight, and a role for a character named Bunny Sue in 1972's A Fan's Notes. She died on April 13, 1975, in Eugene, Oregon, in an apartment fire. And I haven't been able to find any other details on what happened other than it was an apartment fire. So sadly, we'll never know what Julia Ann Robinson could have become because her life was cut short. She actually reminded me quite a bit of Jessica Lange. 
coincidentally, who we'll be talking about in about a month or so. Not so much in mannerisms, but definitely in her look. Especially, just to backtrack a little bit, in the scene where she runs out onto the beach to get Jason after Sally has barged into the St. James to take a bath. There's a moment in that scene where she smiles really wide, and immediately I just thought, she looks like Jessica Lange right there. So after the four of them hop onto a motorized cart and parade out of the arena, in our next scene, we have the big meeting with the Japanese investors. It's this nice lobster dinner complete with bibs out at a restaurant by the pier. On one side of the table, we have the two Japanese businessmen and Sally seated right in between them. On the other side of the table is Jason with his arm around Jessica and the two of them with their hands intertwined and David on the other side of Jessica talking up the businessmen. The camera alternates between the two shots of each side of the table and Jason leans into Jessica, kisses her neck, and Sally from across the table is watching them, becoming hyper aware of what they're doing. And this is the moment where something begins to change in Sally, like quite literally the tables have turned and she is not the desired one anymore. And this is also the scene where we find out that this supposed deal, Jason acquiring this land of Tiki, is not the done deal that Jason has been making it out to be. And please pay attention to what is going on in the background. At one point, David even glances over his shoulder as if someone is watching their table. After this dinner, David begins to realize that Jason is full of shit. But pay attention to the scene that follows, because this is what I was talking about before. About being the one sane person who sees the facade and is being gaslit by everyone who still doesn't see it. Jason, even if you could sew up a down payment, a nightclub isn't they something that you could do. me, what we got here is Stableravia, a kingdom. Well, for God's sakes, let somebody else handle the entertainment. Your brother changes his mind twice now, in Sally, if David has any reservations about the plan, I am welcoming the opportunity to rebut them. But Jason, if somebody doesn't want something, you just can't go give it to him. He's never going to understand what you're trying to do for him. Not ever. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't have any gratitude. He's got only one thing. That's depression, suspicion, and mistrust. She's not all wrong. I mean, <laughs> there is a grain of truth there. Jason, you're asking me to believe in another dream. Mm-hmm. Like two years ago when we were going to go on a trip around the world, the two of us, all expenses paid, Cook's tours, Holland American lines. Well, that's the perfect example. I convinced the USIA that we are goodwill ambassadors, big smiles, and then you got to show up in one of your famous depressions. But the thing with Sally that you must realize is that her priority isn't even this big dream of Jason's. To her, that much is already a given. Her priority is her looks and what she now perceives as her competition with Jessica. It's never said whose idea this was, but in the next scene, Jason has created a big bonfire on the beach 
and Sally comes out with all her clothes and all her makeup. She's wearing a gray sweatshirt and some tan pants. And she excitedly, or so it seems, throws all of this nice stuff into the fire. And Jason is cheering her on this entire time. She even brings out a pair of scissors and hacks away at her long hair, vowing to only ever greet the day with her natural face. No products whatsoever from now on. I tend to believe this ceremony, so to speak, was Jason's idea. Just because he was so into it, I wouldn't be surprised if he came up with it and manipulated Sally into thinking that it was her idea. Because she's feigning happiness, and not very well. She's noticeably teetering between either being on the verge of tears or going on a rampage just underneath the surface. Later on, Jason takes Jessica and the new Sally out on the town for the night while David stays at the suite. Two men from Lewis's gang let themselves into the suite with the intent of picking up Jason, but since David is the only one there, they assume David is Jason and they try to grab David. But remember, there's the gun. David grabs the gun out of the nightstand and is able to fend the men off with it. So David takes this opportunity to go down to Lewis's headquarters himself and find out what this is all about. And well, we've met Lewis before. When David arrives, he's escorted around to the back by one of Lewis's men. Lewis comes out very dapper, three-piece suit and an overcoat. He has David come through the back to an empty bar so they can have a private talk. You put Jason in jail. Why not? I kept him out enough times. Odd way to pay somebody back for years of loyalty. Pay back? You come to tell me who owes who? I had the impression that he opened up some territories for you. Places that you couldn't get into. Places in the South, like Daytona, Atlanta, New Orleans. Places that brought you a lot of money. Okay, so I don't forget a job well done. But maybe you don't know about Hawaii. I know about Hawaii. I know about Hawaii. You send a guy down there, you send a flunky down there, you don't get anything big. You can't send a flunky down there. You send Jason, of course he's got ideas of his own. What do you expect? That's what you like about him. That's why he's working this job for you. That's the way you got started. You think everything goes down one thing right after another? Everything's settled over a lobster dinner? It doesn't work that way. I send him on errands. Next thing is he wants his own island. For a venture. Sure, crabs, roulette. You make a fortune for me. He's going to be the new Conrad Hilton. <laughs> he wants to start off for himself like you started off for yourself. That's all there is to that. He's just like you. Look, son. If Jason's tired of Atlantic City, I'll send him to Hawaii. Fine. You want to go along also? Fine. Goodbye, you boys, some kind of pineapple stand down there. Now imagine being in David's shoes, having to try to explain all this to Jason. Do you think Jason is going to listen? But as you watch through the scene that follows, I want you to remember what I was saying earlier about not only being delusional, but having people in your immediate circle who are equally delusional. Because all of it starts bubbling over and I don't think you'll really expect how it all comes to a breaking point. I didn't when I first saw this movie. 
I think everyone needs to see The King of Marvin Gardens. It's surprising to me that this film isn't more famous. I think you'll find yourself really empathizing with David, but to be honest, I think it would be a little hypocritical to not at least understand where Jason, Sally, and Jessica are coming from, too. The King of Marvin Gardens is available through most platforms. I found it for rent on demand. It's also on DVD and Blu-ray and Amazon Prime. Now, after this holiday season and this crazy introduction to 2021, friends, we are back to weekly episodes. Next week, I'll see you right here on Wednesday with my review of 1973's The Last Detail. And the bane of my existence, 1971's A Safe Place, yes, it is still on the back burner, I assure you. Please subscribe to You Don't Know Jack wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please leave me a review. Please also be sure to join us on social media, You Don't Know Jack podcast on Facebook and Instagram. You Don't Know Jack is a production of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com and discover 30 more great original podcasts. And until next week, I'm Sarah Dimio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack.